there are significant dangers that we have to be alert to in this life. Dangers that can harm us and harm those around us. And we tend, I think, most often be alert to dangers outside, outside of us that we're watching for. And certainly numerous ones of those that we have to unfortunately be alert to in this world. Some of the most common and significant dangers, though, are not out there, but they're in here. They're within us, in each one of us, significant dangers. And one of those dangers can lead us to make horribly unwise and destructive choices. Choices that harm us and harm those around us. Choices that, with a little bit of time, seem to be utterly irrational and foolish. And what is this particular danger today? is the very real and subtle danger of pride. And today we're going to see how pride drives a king to make foolish, irrational, destructive choices. But in that, we'll see not only danger for him, that king, but for us as well. Now, we are tempted to do the same, though we are not kings. But also there is hope for us because of our king. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel, to 1 Samuel chapter 14. Today we're in 1 Samuel 14, starting in verse 24, and the Bible's near you. You can find it on page 236. Page 236, and the Bible's near you. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible or open up a Bible app, just so you can see the passage right in front of you, and you can see exactly where I'm drawing these thoughts from. If you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. We're in chapter 14. The smaller numbers, the verse numbers, will start in verse 24, and we'll go through the end of the chapter. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one today as a gift. At the back of the room down here, there's a stack, and there's a sign that says free Bibles on a table. Please, following the service, stop by, grab one of those Bibles as our gift to you today. So today we're continuing our series in 1 Samuel that we're calling In Search of a King. And as we've been making our way through 1 Samuel, we've seen how God's people, the people of Israel, demanded of God, give us a king. And God in time did give them a king named Saul. And we've seen that Saul was outwardly impressive, taller than anyone else, physically imposing and wealthy, and yet we've also seen repeatedly that he lacked godly character. He's consistently shown himself, though tall, powerful, and the king to fear Especially fear the opinions of others. This pride that has been underneath that has driven him to make unwise choices. It's been evident again and again, even has driven him to disobey God's word. Last week we saw that there was a standoff between the Israelites and their military, standoff with the great Philistine army. The Israelites were outnumbered, lacking in sufficient weapons. And so the Israelites were, were kind of holed up just in a standoff, Saul the king doing nothing, no, no leadership of how they might try to uh, attack or try to level things out. And so finally, Saul's oldest son, Jonathan, we saw, decided that he would do something, at least try. So he suggested to his armor bearer that they would go over and they would attack the Philistines. And Jonathan had said this in chapter 14, verse 6, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. We saw last week that Jonathan was not certain 
that his plan would work. He knew that God does save, that God is powerful, but, but Jonathan had no assurance that in this particular instance that God would save, that God would deliver. But Jonathan was willing, his armor bearers well, and so they went over and they attacked, and, and their attack by God's hand was successful. And the Philistines were now in an uproar, they were beginning to scatter, and the Israelites now seemed to have the upper hand. And so King Saul, who had been doing nothing, just waiting, now saw it as his moment to, to sort of seize upon this victory. And so he rallied his troops, and this is what we find in chapter 14, starting in verse 24. Look there as I read. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. And when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. When the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now, the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon. And the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. They said, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he had built to the Lord. Then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. There was not a man among all the people who answered him. And he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. People said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord, God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord, God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people Israel, give Thuman. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. 
And Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. Saul said, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not be one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly instruct the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. The sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvai, and Malchishua. The names of his two daughters were these, the name of the firstborn, Merab, the name of the younger, Michal. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul. Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiah. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. This morning in our passage, we'll see this emphasis Guard against the destructive power of pride. And instead, trust in the faithful, saving son. Guard against the destructive power of pride. And instead, trust in the faithful, saving son. And we'll look at our passage in these four different scenes. So first, we'll see the king's oath. Second, we'll see the people's sin. Third, we'll see the, the son's ransom. And fourth, the king's life. So the king's oath, the people's sin, the son's ransom, and then forth the king's life. So first we see the king's oath in verses 24 through 30. We see in verse 20, just proceeding and following that the Philistines were in confusion. And so Saul and the soldiers of Israel are now in pursuit. This is the time to sort of seize upon that and, and perhaps sort of finally close this out with a victory. In verse 24, we're told that in the beginning moments of this pursuit, that Saul, the king, gave this oath to his people. He said, cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening and until I am avenged on my enemies. So he pronounced this curse on any of his soldiers. Until it's evening, if they eat, there will be a curse upon them. Now, this does not seem to be a great strategy. Now, on the one hand, it's true that he doesn't want the, the soldiers to stop and to begin some great celebration because the victory is not complete. And, and that could have been a temptation to, to pause in this way. But he could have said, look, you, you, you can't stop for a celebration banquet. You can eat something small, but we must continue in this fight. But we also see that the, the soldiers are, are tired and they're hungry. If you go and watch the Boston Marathon, Along the path, there are numerous stations, often providing water, providing Gatorade, and often providing some sort of nutritious snacks, and, and sometimes runners carry their own. And it makes sense, right? Because they're, they're exerting all this effort for miles and miles. And so they need some level of nourishment for this exertion. We even see this in little kids' soccer. Pity the parent who forgets to bring halftime snacks if they're assigned to you. 
Why? Because the kids are hungry. They're, they're starving, they think, as they're exerting all this effort. And so you have to bring this. And, and so it is for the soldiers here. And we're told that the men were hard-pressed because of this. But even more than being an unwise strategy, we see that this decision is from an ungodly motive. Notice what, Paul, what Saul says. He says, no food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. This was really a driving force. He needed his enemies to be defeated. No, no pause for a brief refueling. This is very personal for Saul. I and my. He doesn't even say our enemies. He doesn't even say our God's enemies. This is a very different outlook from what we saw last week. In the preceding verses with Jonathan. And Jonathan's motivation to attack, it was because he called these Philistines the uncircumcised. They were, they were outsiders. These were not covenant people. They were people opposed to the covenant people of God. And Jonathan always spoke of us, not I and mine. And when they got ready to attack last week in chapter 24, verse 12, Jonathan had said this, the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Speaking of the entire nation, but in fact, whose hand was it? It was only Jonathan and his armor bearer. It was only the two of them. But he doesn't say into to you and I's hands, but into the very hand of our entire nation. That's how Jonathan views it. He saw himself as not fighting for his own name nor for his own fame, but, but for his people, for his king, his dad Saul, and for his God. Jonathan was the faithful son who humbly served his King, his people, and his God. But King Saul here, on the other hand, lacks this humility. He's prideful and self-centered. And across our introduction from Saul up until now, we've seen this pride show up in so many different ways. It's often shown up in what we might refer to as the fear of man. So it's not, it doesn't outwardly look quite as prideful as some demonstrations of it is. Author Ed Welch has written a helpful book on the topic of the fear of man. The book is called When People Are Big and God is Small, and the title alone is a, is a helpful picture. That's what the fear of man is. People, their opinions, their views become great in our sight, and our view of God becomes small. Welch says, in the fear of man, we replace God with people. Instead of biblically guided fear of the Lord, we fear others. Another author says it this way, there is no sin so prevalent, so insidious, and so deep as the sin of fearing people more than we fear God. So we see going on in Saul. We've sinned too fearful at times to lead God's people, too fearful to be even anointed as king because he'd already been anointed by Samuel and that he, that he hides in the luggage. Instead of rightfully fearing God, he fears the opinions of others, and it drives this deep insecurity within him that leads to these devastating results. These enemies were so important to him that it drove him to make an unnecessary rash oath. Those who fear the opinions of others, who are insecure because of their pride, are very easily offended by others. And those offenses are seen as profoundly deep and often 
we feel they must be avenged in some way. So we see that in Saul. My enemies, he says. I wonder if in your own life, in your own heart, does that show up for you sometimes as well? Does the opinion of others sometimes have great power over you? And there's one way that that shows up. Are, are you honestly easily offendable by others? Are you often offended by numerous people? And related to that, do you keep a long record of wrongs? Whether you ever tell others or not, within, is there a record of wrongs? And do you want, deep down, to see those avenged in some way? Does your pride sometimes cause you to make foolish commitments like Saul does here? Unnecessary, rash commitments. Saul's foolish oath had impact on everyone around him. So they're trying to fight for him, for their king, for their nation, and yet they're famished, they're exhausted, they're weak. It was bad enough that they're fighting without eating, but now we're told in the text they, they make their way into the forest, and there in the forest, there's honey on the ground. It's all around them. It's just dripping down. Personally, I don't, I don't love honey, so that wouldn't have been a great temptation for me. Snickers on the ground, that would be something else. I'd be like, sorry, king, I've got to stop for the Snickers. But although it must have been difficult, none of them stopped to eat. The soldiers just continued in their pursuit except for one of them. And who was that? Jonathan. He ate, but why? Was this outright rebellion of Jonathan against his father, the king? Was he thinking to himself, I don't care what the king says, I'm hungry, I must eat? No, he was unaware. He had not heard Saul's words. And why? Was he just not listening? No, he was busy actually doing the fighting. Saul's not fighting. He's the one making these rash oaths. Jonathan's the one leading the fight. That's why he didn't hear. As a result, Jonathan eats. He did what was a completely normal thing to do. You're very hungry. You're weak. You're, you're exerting so much effort. Here's some honey. And so he ate some of the honey, and we see that his body was strengthened. His eyes became bright. He was refreshed by this bit of food. One of the people saw what Jonathan did, and they told him what his father had said, and the people were terrified. They, they knew what this meant for Jonathan. What would happen to the faithful son who was fighting so valiantly his father, the king? We see Jonathan's response, though, verse 29. He says, my father has troubled the land by this. He says, look at how I've been helped by this eating. It would have been better had we been able to eat, but now this defeat has not been as great as it would have been. So we've been seeing a contrast between the unfaithful, unrighteous king and his faithful and righteous son. That's continuing here. So we see the king's oath. But then second, we see the people's sin in verses 31 to 35. So we see the battle had continued, significant success for the Israelites, but also the people were faint because they weren't able to eat. And we're told that the people now begin to take some of the spoil of war. 
But the actions here are not described as violating Saul's oath. So in the oath, Saul had said not until evening. So it seems likely it's become evening. The people have been fighting very hard. They're very hungry. So they begin to take these oxen and they begin to uh, sheep and oxygen and slaughter them. We see verse 20, 32 that they ate them with the blood. So they're, they're so hungry, they're eating so quickly, they're not taking the appropriate time to drain the blood from them. The word then comes to Saul, behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating the blood. It was well known that God had dictated to his people in the book of Leviticus, they must not eat while the blood was still in the body of the animal. So Saul sends the messengers to the people, tell them not to eat the blood, but instead to, to bring the animals to this altar and to drain the blood. We see verse 35, Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar he had built to the Lord, we're told. So Saul's foolish oath had contributed to the situation. Now, the people were still responsible for their own sin. But it seems pretty clear they behave this way because they were so famished, because they'd been unable to eat throughout this pursuit. They're so hungry, finally the time comes, they can actually eat, and so they do it in a sinful way. Saul's oath had impacted Jonathan, now impacted the entire army. Saul had previously seen what happens when you sin against God, as Samuel had confronted Saul himself. And so here, he takes that seriously, he calls God's people to do the right thing. Unfortunately, though, it seems across this text that Saul likely has not had a real change of heart. But he is fearful of the Lord being against him and against his pursuit of the Philistines. And so, so he wants to at least try to do the right thing here. We see in Saul a king whose selfish actions, at the very least, create a great temptation to sin for his people. Contribute to the likelihood of them sinning. Friends, if we're honest, all of us know the temptation for all of us to sin is great. And we certainly don't need anyone else encouraging us, putting temptations in front of us. And friends, for those of us who are Christians, thankfully, Jesus Christ, our King, came and lived a perfect, sinless life. And he's always at work in us by the Spirit. We who trust in Christ helping us anytime we're tempted and we have any desire to, to flee and fight sin, the spirit of Christ in us will help us in that. Christ is for us and with us to help us fight sin. And the reality is we can make progress in this life, in the fight against sin. It will be a lifelong fight. There is no question. But there is hope in that fight because of the spirit in us. So we see the people's sin. And third, we see the son's ransom. The son's ransom in verses 36 through 46. Saul then now wanted to continue the fight throughout the night. The people respond to his plan. Look at verse 36. They say, do whatever seems good to you. It's a very different response from what Jonathan received last week from his armor bearer. If you remember last week, Jonathan said to his armor bearer, let's go over there and, and let's fight. Maybe the Lord will help us in this. But the armor bearer knew the plan was just the two of them. And the armor bearer's response had been this, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. I am with you, heart and soul. I mean, it was a stirring affirmation that says, I'm with you. Even if we die, I'm with you. Do what's in your heart. 
Not exactly what the people are saying, is it? They instead give a very lukewarm response to Saul. Do whatever seems good to you. Here, Saul is not considered whether he is the king should pursue in this way. And so the priest comes in verse 36 and says, let us draw near to God here. And here we see the unnaved nature of Saul's leadership. Sometimes seeming to want to do the right and godly thing, at other times not. Sometimes being a leader, sometimes here being led by the priest. So Saul went along and asked of the Lord, shall I go down against the Philistines? Will you give them into our hands? But the Lord didn't answer him. There was only silence from God. As Saul discerns by this silence that there must be sin within God's people. There's sin among the people. That's why God is not speaking. So Saul calls all the people together, and he makes another bold but foolish statement. Look down at verse 39. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Saul is so insecure, he fears losing the people's allegiance here, that he makes another bold public claim, doubling down on his earlier foolish oath. Notice that none of the people answer him. Because they know what Jonathan did. They realize Jonathan is the one who has sinned here. I mean, they see what Saul is saying, so as if they just sort of stand there, you can just imagine the awkward silence. As they refuse to say anything. So, so God is silent, Saul. And the people that Saul reigns over are silent as well. So Saul divides the people, he and Jonathan on one, all the people on the other. The people again respond to his plan, do what seems good to you. So they use the Urim and Thummim. It's not completely clear how these objects work, but they were in the breastpiece of the priest's sometimes used in seeking guidance from God. This was a tool used during that time. Now, with the coming of the Holy Spirit, we no longer use tools like that. So Saul asked if the sin was in the people or he and Jonathan. And it was he and Jonathan. So he asked if it was he or Jonathan, and Jonathan was taken. So Saul asked Jonathan, what did he do? Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand, here I am, I will die. So here we have an honest answer from the faithful, righteous son. Notice Saul's response, verse 44, that you will surely die. Saul the king has now cornered himself by his foolish public oaths and statements and pride, certainly unwilling to back off. So he's committed now to put his son to death. His faithful son, who's done nothing but fight for him. His faithful son, by which this entire victory was started over the Philistines. And Saul would see him put to death. But notice how the people respond. Look down at verse 45. They say, shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not be one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. 
So it's not the king who shows wisdom here, but it's the people. But they intervene to save Jonathan from his father. The insecure rash king is stopped from killing his faithful, righteous son. The people who Jonathan has delivered through his actions join together to ransom this one who had been their rescuer. So here we see this contrast between Saul and Jonathan. The utter unrighteousness and failure, the pride of Saul and not perfect, but righteous faithfulness, Jonathan. Again, we're seeing the people's need of a truly faithful king. They had said, give us a king. Samuel had warned them. They demanded still, give us a king. And in Jonathan, we see a pointer to the one who is to come. For a greater son was to come. He would come through the line of the next king who we're about to meet in 1 Samuel. And this future eternal king has now come, Jesus Christ, God the Son. He came and lived a perfectly sinless, righteous life, in every way righteous. He came to save. For him, though, the crowd would not intervene to save him, but the crowd would turn against this faithful, righteous son. He would be willingly go to the cross himself to to die in the place of sinners. He would not be ransomed like Jonathan, but he would die that he might ransom those who put him to death. He would be the ransom for many. This would be an act of mercy and grace and love. And by this, salvation would be made available through this perfect, righteous son, the king to any and all who would admit their need of it. To any and all who admit their unrighteousness, their pride, their anger, their rebellion, and admit their need of a savior and turn to Christ by faith and receive this free gift. And if you're not a Christian this morning, we're so glad you would spend a part of your weekend with us. Friends, our prayer, you would see the beauty of Jesus. There is no one like him. One who chose by the giving of his own life to pay for to be the ransom, to pay for our rebellion, our sin, your sin, dying in our place. And friend, very importantly, this, all of this is offered as a, a gift, friend, that can only be received by faith. We recognize this is out of step with other worldviews, and so if this is very new to you, we hope that you would feel safe and comfortable to explore that with us over the weeks and months to come. But friend, maybe you've been exploring this for months or perhaps years. And I wonder, why, why not today? Turn to Christ today and receive this free gift by faith. Nothing will make us happier than for you to do that. If you'd like to know more, I'll be at the door following the service. Or if you came with a friend or family member, they would love to tell you more as well. You can note that on the card as well. Friends, for those who are Christians, this is our hope. Not ourselves, but the faithful son. The one who came to be a ransom for us. And through this gift of salvation, there is forgiveness for us now and the power of the Holy Spirit. So now we can fight against sin. The reality of pride still hangs significant for all of us. And yet it's possible to make progress. 
to increasingly rightly fear God instead of fearing the opinions of others, to know how to flee temptation, to grow in grace. There is now potential through the Spirit in us for substantial Christ-like humility. For that's possible for each of us because of Christ. So we see the Son's ransom. And then fourth, and finally, we see the King's life. The King's life in verses 47 to 52. As you read through the flow of this, this seems sort of oddly placed in the midst. But we're seeing across the narrative that the Saul's life is winding down and coming to an end. Now, it won't completely close out to the end of this book. We see where his life is headed. And here, tucked between the context of these scenes, we have this kind of high-level overview of King Saul's life. We, we see a, a brief description of his reign, in particular, his military leadership. We see a glimpse of his family and his closest advisors. And finally, a brief glimpse of one of his primary practices as king. And based on this description, on the most surface level, he was a relatively successful king at a military level, as the text tells us. But he also was a king like all the other kings, as Samuel had warned him that he would take from them their finest men. He would take from them their daughters and their lands. So verse 52, he would take, he would attach himself to their finest and this overview is intended to give us a contrast to what we've been seeing in recent chapters and what we will see in the chapters ahead. Something like when you read an obituary in the newspaper, or I guess, not in the newspaper anymore, I guess, when you read an obituary online. And almost every obituary gives just some sort of basic facts, when they were born, how long they lived, a few things about them. And if it says anything about them, it says that in the most positive of light, it's only rare that we actually see a very negative obituary written. So that's what we see here. It's a very high level, an outlook on Saul. But as we've seen in the chapters leading up to this, as we are about to see, we've seen that Saul lacks godliness. A right fear of God, a right commitment as king to God's word. So we're intended to see that you can be outwardly really quite successful while being a failure within. At the level of your character, at the level of your heart. We see the importance of the heart, of the inner life, of our relationship with God and with others. But we should see that we, we don't want to settle only for outward success. So much in our society, in our city, pushes us towards success, towards climbing the ladder, towards achievement, accumulation, but so often at the expense of the inward, of our heart, our character. So we may climb the ladder, and our obituary may say some really high-level things about us. And yet at the end, it's possible to have no one left. Because in our pursuit of that, there was nothing within us. And so we slowly alienate those we love the most, family and friends. We ultimately live apart from God. Friend, I wonder if that's where you are. 
outwardly, people around you might say, wow, she's a great success. Wow, what an impressive person. And yet inwardly, your heart is far from God. Or relationships have slowly or perhaps quickly been destroyed, broken. Closest friends and family members. Because the good news is, if that's where you're headed, outwardly impressive, inwardly failing, there is still time. Turn to Christ. Christ will help us. There is forgiveness. There is restoration. There is hope of progress. It's also possible here today, and, and honestly, the, the outward's not so great either. But outwardly, your life seems on a dangerous and perhaps even disastrous path. So not only do you have broken relationships with people, but sort of spiraling down at every level. Because the fact is, there is good news for us, if that's where you are. That Christ brings good news and restoration, healing, transformation, and salvation. So friend, it's never too late to turn back. No matter what your history has been, no matter how far you have been, friend, turn to Christ today. The faithful king saves, forgives all of our disastrous choices, transforms, can bring reconciliation in this life. Friend, there's time for all of us. Time is short, so we would turn to Christ today. So friends, let's guard against the destructive power of pride. Instead today, trust our humble, faithful, saving king, the faithful, sacrificing son who ransomed us 